Now, the Three Martini Lunch with Greg Corumbus and Jim Garrity. And welcome, everyone, to the Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, along with Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. We have no good martinis for you today. We're sorry about that, but uh, that's not where the news is leading us. Just wanted to make you aware of that up front. We have bad, bad, and crazy. And let's start with bad number one. This is from USA Today. A federal judge in Texas has declared that the all-male military draft is unconstitutional, ruling that, quote, the time has passed, unquote, for a debate on whether women belong in the military. The decision deals the biggest legal blow to the selective service system since the Supreme Court upheld the draft in 1981. In Rosker v. Goldberg, the court ruled that the male-only draft was, quote, fully justified because women were ineligible for combat roles. But U.S. District Judge Gray Miller ruled late Friday that while historical restrictions on women serving in combat, quote, may have justified past discrimination, unquote, Men and women are now equally able to fight. In 2015, the Pentagon lifted all restrictions for women in military service. So, Jim, there are a couple different ways that this could be debated, both of which I think make this a bad decision. First of all, you can now force, if this were to go forward, uh, women into military service, which, which means if they meet the fitness standards, they could be forced into ground combat, which I think would make a lot of families uneasy. Secondly, you have a federal judge deciding, quote, the time has passed for a debate on actually changing the law. You know, Greg, when we talk about legislating from the bench, <laughs> this isn't even that. This is like dictating from the bench. He's declaring this debate is over. It's time to stop. Now, Greg, if I had to summarize Jim philosophy in, in one short, succinct sentence, I can't quite do it as well as Jesus said, standing on one foot and saying, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. I'd say simply Jim philosophy is stop futzing with it. Stop futzing with it. Stop futzing with it. Um, we have a policy in which the, the there, yes, the draft is still on the books for all young men. We haven't had the draft since Vietnam. Uh, I registered, you registered, every young man registers, but we haven't used the draft. And you have to figure if we did not use the draft after 9-11, that it's going to take a pretty extraordinary set of circumstances for the U.S. government to get to restart the draft. It probably would take something on par with Red Dawn, and whether you prefer the 80s Soviet Union invasion version or the version in which somehow North Korea got the resources to invade the United States because we couldn't have China be the bad guys because they'd retaliate against the film studio. Um, that's the kind of circumstance in which they would bring back the draft. And with that, you'd end up with a situation where, like, you, you presumably, if you saw teeming hordes of an invading army advancing into American territory, you'd probably want to volunteer for military service anyway. They, you'd like to think a draft wouldn't be all that necessary in that scenario because deep down, Greg, we're all like Patrick Swayze and the Wolverines. We want to, we want to defend our country if it ever, God forbid, got to that. In light of that, you have a situation which doesn't really seem to bother anyone. People who want to serve can serve. People who don't want to serve don't have to serve. And we don't face this sort of national, you know, future of America defining crisis uh, right now, this judge and, and has to go and louse it all up. Uh, obviously, yes, when you do open up all military positions to the uh, to to both sexes. Uh, Greg, how many people did I just defend by saying both sexes <laughs> to men and women as they choose to identify? You know, um, people will say, wait a second. Why are you only taking males for a draft if uh, if every job is open to women and women can do every one of those jobs? 
you know, again, we have a system that's worked for at least a generation. So I guess now we're coming up on two generations since Vietnam. Why we'd want to blow this up and start up this argument is beyond me. Obviously, there are a whole lot of families who will not want their daughters to be drafted. They feel very strongly that this is not what their uh, daughters are supposed to do. We have a general cultural consensus on the requirement of men to to register for this. Now, there are a lot of countries where the draft is still in still in a, a big part of life. And sometimes people try to buy their way out of it or things like that. I remember in uh, lived over in Turkey, and there were people who would say try to get out of their compulsory military service by. And, you know, spending a lot of money and engaging in some sort of civil service project or things like that. Generally, the richer and more connected you were, the easier it was to get something like that. But we have a perfectly good system that works. This judge is going to try to blow it all up. Uh, We're going to have to end up either making both uh, young men and young women register for the draft, which will be phenomenally unpopular, or we'll have to end the draft entirely. And as much as, look, if we haven't needed it for the past half century, we're probably not going to need it anytime soon, hopefully, thank God forbid. But if we do, we just like to have that option there. It's on the, it's that, you know, in case of emergency, break glass. We can do that if we ever come to that kind of a dire situation. We have an excellent all-volunteer military. They're the best in the world, the best equipped, the best trained. Chances are they can handle anything that gets thrown our way. But you know what? We just want to have that option if it comes to that. Uh, but apparently none of this belongs in this, na- this kind of perspective, doesn't belong in our national debate. No, no, no. We have to blow up the entire system and create this giant new national controversy. Way to go, Your Honor. (laughs) Yes. Once again, this guy's name is Gray Miller. Uh, Jim uh, Jazz Shaw over at Hot Air reported on this. He says the plaintiffs in this case were basing their argument on the fact that the current draft system constitutes a double standard based on gender. He says this is a big win for men's rights because, you know, if women wanted to join, they can now and pretty much be eligible for whatever role they're qualified for. So this is uh, only uh, making things equal for people who don't want to be in the service. Well, I'm now left scratching my head, Greg. So was this guy really bothered by the fact that at 18 he had to go down, register, and put his name? You know, like you go to the post office, you fill out the form, and I don't know about you, Greg, I haven't heard from him since. You know, it's not even like publishers clearing house sweepstakes where they're going to show up <laughs> at your door and say, hey, we need you. You know, it, it's really not a giant hassle. And so the idea that, oh, it's so unfair, I had to fill out this form and my sister didn't. I mean, this is one of those moments where we need the U.S. government, instead of judges enabling this sort of thing, we need the equivalent of, I don't care who started it, I will turn this car around right now if you don't start whining. All right, let's move on to our second bad martini now, Jim. And this comes with a silver lining when you think about our first martini. Uh, The good news in thinking about women being drafted is that this is all theoretical now because we all know the planet's going to end in 12 years because of climate change. And there's really nothing else we can do about it unless we take drastic action now to transform our economy and et cetera, et cetera. So uh, uh, twin billing here, uh, one at a time, though. Dianne Feinstein, longtime senator from California, just got elected to yet another term at the age of 85. So you know with uh, her next re-election coming when she's 91 and uh, having six years before that, she's really going to care a lot about what her constituents tell her to do. Um, she was uh, accosted in her office by a bunch of school children, some of whom were very young, as you can tell by the speech impediments, and uh, a high schooler who was very, very strident in her opinion. So Diane Feinstein getting raked over the coals by the left on this. Here's an extended excerpt. Scientists have 
have said that we have 12 years to turn this around. Well, it's not going to get turned around in 10 years. What we can do Senator, if this doesn't get turned around in 10 years, you're looking at the faces of the people who are going to be living with these consequences. The government is supposed to be for the people and by the people and all for the people. You know what's interesting about this group is I've been doing this for 30 years. I know what I'm doing. You come in here and you say it has to be my way or the highway. I don't respond to that. I've gotten elected. I just ran. I was elected by almost a million vote plurality. And I know what I'm doing. So, you know, maybe people should listen a little bit. I hear what you're saying, but we're the people who voted you. You're supposed to listen to us. That's your job. How old are you? How old I'm are 16. You? I well, can't vote. You didn't vote, vote for me. Well, she, I'm she voted. It doesn't matter. We're the ones who are going to be impacted. Something. It doesn't matter. We're going to be the ones who are impacted. I understand that. I have seven grandchildren. I understand it very well. Senator, the cost of not taking this action is far higher than the cost of what the Green New Deal will be. And there is enormous popularity for this bill around the whole country. And we're asking you to be brave and do this for us and for your grandchildren. I'm trying to do the best I can, which was to write a responsible resolution. Any plan that doesn't take bold, transformative action is not going to be what we need. Well, you know better than I do. So I think one day you should run for the Senate. We don't have time for responsible legislation, Senator Feinstein. Jim, uh, they've done something I didn't think was possible. We actually feel a molecule of sympathy for Dianne Feinstein here. I think my favorite part there, Greg, is where the 16-year-old says, we're the ones who voted for you. <laughs> Feinstein handled it just, just fine, no pun intended. Uh, but let me just observe, wouldn't you have just loved to, oh, you're 16 and you voted for me? Officers, arrest that woman. <laughs> She cast an illegal ballot. She is not legally old enough to vote. Um, First of all, there's a broader topic, and it's been a little refreshing to see some uh, blue checkmark on Twitter. Mainstream reporters starting to say, it's almost as if these children are being used to make a point and almost to provoke an ugly scene instead of to legitimately debate the issue. It's almost like they're being used as a political prop to make a targeted lawmaker look bad. Boy, it would have been nice to hear that in the gun control debate over the last year or so. Any argument that is really good and valid does not need to be advocated by children. For obvious reasons, adults are generally try to be a little nicer with children and generally try not to um, uh, engage as forcefully or, or, or you know, be as critical. Or when a, when a child says something that's flat out wrong, you try to be as gentle as possible. In those cases, you can tell those kids have been drilled on their talking points, the cost of inaction versus the cost of action and all that. You can tell that they've been drilled into it by their parents. And this is I know this happens on both sides. I remember a couple of years ago at CPAC seeing some young girl, you know, in full Trump regalia. She had the Trump T-shirt and all that kind of stuff. And she was there with what looked like her grandmother. And she was this eight-year-old, or, or I'm guessing at her age, something around there, was giving an amazingly forceful argument in defense of the grab them by the you-know-what statement, uh, that it was locker room talk, that all men did this kind of locker room talk, and uh, thus no one should make a big deal out of it. Um, and it was kind of horrifying to see those kinds of arguments coming out of an eight-year-old's mouth. I, I, don't, I don't think eight-year-olds should be really up to, up to speed on that. It's okay to hide some of the uglier aspects of the news cycle 
from your children. Uh, I don't think it's a good idea to have your kids and turn them into your own little mini pundit um, who can go out and make the arguments for you because people are more reticent about reacting negatively or criticizing a child spokesperson. Uh, you know, let kids be kids. And for a couple of years, by the way, CPAC is this week. We've had that. Oh, look at this. This 12 year old has a talk radio show. And, you know, and it was I, I always did not like it. Usually the kids, by the way, then end up going to college and they end up drifting left. And somebody writes this big, giant expose about how the, you know, kid pundit on the right has turned left as soon as he went to college and met a liberal girl or something like that. Um, you're not supposed to use children this way. This is a pretty bad example of this on the part of these folks who went to Feinstein. It's fascinating to see Diane Feinstein now being targeted by this and having to deal with this sort of thing. I think she handled it about as well as she possibly could. Um, I wonder if the moment she walked into that, uh, that encounter and knew the whole thing was going to be recorded, whether she realized she was being ambushed. The whole point was to get her to either be condescending or snotty or to lose her temper or to, you know, to show, you know, Senator Dianne Feinstein made children cry today when she said she would not sign on to the Green New Deal. Really deeply frustrating. One last point about that. One of the uh, little moppets there says this deal, this deal has an amazing popularity. Um, Greg, that's horse pucky because they point <laughs> to one poll in which you, you word it exactly the way the Green New Deal advocates would like their proposals to be worded. They're very popular. When asked, have you heard of the Green New Deal? It was something like 10 to 15% of it. So most people have no idea what the Green New Deal is. Once the Green New Deal advocates say, oh, this is all good. It's about hugging the envir- hugging trees, protecting the environment, and not letting Bambi's mother get shot. Um, lo and behold, people think it's terrific. And they're not into the, oh, we have to replace 90% of our energy sources in 10 years. And uh, I-, I might have to lose my car. I have to cut the defense budget in half, pull back all U.S. troops, and all ban the internal combustion engine. My suspicion is if you pull on that, it won't be quite so popular. A couple different follow-ups here. First of all, some people out there might be wondering, what kind of adults do these children who come in with these force-fed talking points turn out to be? Well, we know. Uh, one of them is a New York congresswoman, uh, and she was talking recently on Instagram about uh, why they probably won't be using children <laughs> as uh, spokespeople anymore because we shouldn't have children anymore. <laughs> Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez talking about how dreadful the climate's going to be. There's scientific consensus that the lives of children are going to be very difficult, and it does lead, I think, young people to have a legitimate question, you know, should, is it okay to still have children? And I mean, not just financially, because people are graduating with 20, 30, $100,000 worth of student loan debt. And so they can't even afford to have kids in a house, but also just this basic moral question, like what do we do? And, and even if you don't have kids, there are still children here in the world, and we have a moral obligation to them uh, to leave a better world for them. And this idea that if we just, you know, I've been working on this for X amount of years, um, it's like not good enough. Like We need a universal sense of urgency, and people are trying to like introduce watered-down proposals that are frankly going to kill us. She's slicing sweet potatoes there, and it's painfully obvious she's never done this before, but she's doing it for the video. Uh, Jim, what do you make of uh, AOC going full Malthusian here? Yeah, I mean, so so this is on a live stream. It came out Sunday night, and I, I'm among those who believe that, you know, 
Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez probably gets... I, I go back and forth on this. Does she get too much attention from the media and also from conservative media as well? Yeah, I think you can make that argument. She doesn't have much seniority. Um, she's only been in office for two months. This is not, you know, there's some indications that Nancy Pelosi is not all that enamored with her. But on the other hand, you've seen with the Green New Deal that when Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says, puts out an idea, it tends to get a lot of traction, both on progressive grassroots and social media and things like that. I actually think you can argue that on on some ideological level, on some sort of media level, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has actually positioned herself to be sort of the de facto, um, if not leader of the Democratic Party, then probably the leader of the, the progressive movement. There are a lot of Democrats out there doing this, but I think she's doing more to push the Overton window, that range of acceptable ideas and public discourse further to the left than anybody else out there. I uh, wrote about this a lot in today's Morning Jolt. But so, so a couple people, I, and I said, look, I don't want lawmakers going anywhere near the arguments of this size family is moral and that size family is immoral. And the idea of, you know, it's a legitimate question. It's a serious question of whether it's still okay to have kids. You know, you come to my house for a party and you say, yeah, I don't think it's morally okay to have kids anymore. I'll ask you to leave. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> there, there, are certain, there are a few sentiments out there that will set me off like this. And here's the thing. If Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the bartender, says, yeah, I don't think people should be having kids anymore. The environment's going to get too bad. Climate change is going to be too severe. Who would bring the child into this world? By the way, speaking as a parent, Greg, you're a parent. For all those people out there who are thinking, you know, I want to have kids someday, but I I don't want to wait for the right time. You're never going to have that perfect moment in your life. And if you look at the headlines, you're like, oh, my God, this world seems so screwed up. Oh, my goodness, you know. There's no tomorrow. Things are only going to get worse from here. Why would a, who, what loving person would bring a child into this world? Look, there's always bad news. There's always something that seems terrible on the horizon. We're, we're always doomed. And you know what? We seem to get through it just fine. People kept having children after 9-11. Uh, my kids were born. You know, the Iraq war was going at its worst. The recession was going on. There's always bad times going on, right? You find some way through it. Human beings kept having children through the Black Plague, through the, the Hundred Years War, the Thirty Years War. People had children during World War II. Not as many because a lot of the guys were off fighting. But, you know, we have always started families and raised children because uh, of the recognition that they are a blessing. They are one of our paths to immortality. We are made of dust. We will pass away. But our children will live on and we will be part of a long legacy you know, that, that creates a better world. You know, I mean, this is what really gets at Malthusianism is you see people as problems instead of as potential solutions. And it's just the most, you know, insufferable. So this this hits me, you know, right down on a nerve because, you know, now, again, this is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez trying to chop a sweet potato. Um, (laughs) She she may be a little bit distracted by how difficult this task is proving. She's speaking off the cuff. This is not a legislative proposal. But having said that, one of the ways you avoid having a one-child policy like they had in China or something like that, is that when government officials start talking about what kind of family structures and sizes are okay and which ones aren't, you shout back, this is none of your forstunken business. And I don't want anybody in government saying this kind of family is okay and that kind of family is not okay. It's bad enough when you have a large family these days. Uh, my buddy Cam has five. And, you know, when you say that, people's eyes tend to pop out of their skull like ping pong balls or something. It's just this weird kind of cultural... Um, sometimes it's an open sneer and sometimes it's just a, oh, well, why did you do that? <laughs> you know, like, like you went to the store and you bought 12 eggs when you only needed six for a recipe or something like that. So 
Um, just kind of galling to see this. It'll be interesting to see whether this remains just an off-the-cuff statement on Instagram uh, or whatever social media she was using to live stream this, or whether this turns into uh, a big push on the left of, hey, you know what? Americans have had far too much freedom in deciding the size of their own families. Uh, it's time for us to start weighing in on that and creating you know, government incentives for or disincentives uh, against large families. Her kitchen looks a lot like Elizabeth Warren's, too. It's almost like there's a set somewhere where these uh, people just kind of <laughs> rotate in and out. There's, but... there's one interior designer who gets all their gigs. <laughs> so, uh, But you're right about the Overton window, too. Uh, the, as ludicrous as these sound, the more they get repeated, the more more people are going to think that they sound more sensible. So we have to be ready for that. Uh, Jim, just as an exit on this one, there's also, I saw on Twitter, a line of People, I think, a little bit older than the kids that were in Feinstein's office waiting to uh, accost Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell about this stuff. I'm guessing he's not going with the, uh, well, I've got my own plan and I hear what you're saying, but uh, I just don't think we're, this is the right time. Uh, so I'm just curious what one sentence line he's going to come up with to essentially tell these kids to buzz off. Kids, you've convinced me. I'm going to have a vote on the Green New Deal. <laughs> not just soon. But before every major Senate primary (laughs) next year, and we'll vote on it again right before the general election, just to get everybody on the record. Now, (laughs) I can't guarantee passage, but I can make sure we will make sure every Democratic senator has to choose between you and the voters of the general electorate. Thank you, children. You've made my day better. All right, let's go to our final uh, crazy martini now. Mitch McConnell is the current Senate Majority Leader, the man who held that position before him for eight long years. Harry Reid of Nevada, one of our personal favorites here on the Three Martini Lunch. The good news about Harry Reid is that apparently his pancreatic cancer is in remission, which is nothing short of a miracle, so we're genuinely happy about that. Harry Reid, however, has the same personality he had before any of this, which is not good for anyone. Uh, He was uh, speaking with Dana Bash of CNN about how much he hates Donald Trump, uh, and he actually got to the point where he was longing for the last Republican president. You told the New York Times that President Trump is, without question, the worst president we've ever had. About a dozen years ago, I remember coming here to Nevada and you telling me almost the same thing about George W. Bush. President Bush is the worst president we've ever had. In hindsight, I wish every day for a George Bush again. Uh, I think that he and I had our differences, but no one ever questioned his patriotism. Our battles were strictly political battles. I just try to wrap my head around somebody who, who covered you and was with you real time all those years ago in the Bush administration when you were, you know, his chief antagonist in the Senate, calling him a loser, calling him a liar. And now you're saying, please, I wish I had George W. Bush in the White House again. There's no question in my mind that George Bush would be Babe Ruth in this uh, league that he's in with Donald Trump in the league. Donald Trump wouldn't make the team. So now he's walked back his hatred of George W. Bush. He's walked back his hatred of Mitt Romney, who he baselessly accused of not paying taxes during the 2012 campaign. So, Jim, it almost makes you leap to the conclusion that Democrats will demonize whoever they need to at the moment in politics. Every Democrat's favorite Republican is either the retired ones or the dead ones. Yep. Uh, as soon as they, as soon as they're no longer in any position to affect policy, then all of a sudden they become not so bad. Now, look, you know, I have fond memories of George W. Bush too. I, I remember right around, right before the election of 2016, it was Bill Maher who's been a 
painting the tokus and variety of other topics lately, but he made some observation I thought was very smart. He actually kind of more, he didn't quite apologize, but he acknowledged that in 2008, in 2004, 2008, 2012, he and other progressives and liberals like him had basically tried to argue to the public that George W. Bush and John McCain and Mitt Romney were the devil and that they weren't the devil. Uh, and that they actually were, they just had different ideas and they had disagreements about those ideas, but those were actually good men who wanted to do what they thought was best for the country. They just had different ideologies and that their, their characters were not bad. But, that, you know, but remember, Donald Trump is a devil, right? Now, I don't know who the Republicans are going to nominate after Donald Trump. Um, I'm hoping it goes in a quite different direction, but, you know, we'll see how things shake out there. But my suspicion is, Greg, that if you and I are still doing the three martini lunch 10 years from now or 20 years from now, you'll hear lawmakers saying, ah, oh, you know, if only they could be a sensible moderate the way Donald Trump was. You know, <laughs> whoever that next Republican nominee or next Republican president is going to be, oh, that's the real danger. He's the real extremist. At least Trump was good on trade and, you know, whatever stuff. That, you know, Trump signed uh, criminal justice reform or something. They'll, they'll find some way to convince themselves that Trump wasn't that bad. It's the current guy who's terrible. Um, I, I just like a little bit more. Like I'm glad to see he misses George W. Bush and he's saying nice things about him. I wouldn't mind a little bit more contrition over all the things he said about George W. Bush and all the other times he had said things, not just in terms of nasty personal attacks, but also the things he said that just flat out false, like his attacks on Mitt Romney. So to sum up, Greg, way to go, Nevada. Way to go. <laughs> Jim, uh, have a good day. We'll be back at it tomorrow. Talk to you then. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity of National Review. I'm Greg Columbus of Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. And be sure to tune in again on Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.